Working Class Audio is made possible by the support of Cali Audio, DistroKid, Sampley Audio, Audio Technica, Gearspace, and Grace Design. This is the Working Class Audio Podcast, Session 294. Working Class Audio, navigating the world of recording with a working class perspective. Here's your host, Matt Boudreaux. Thanks, Chuck. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Working Class Audio Podcast. This is session 294 you're listening to. My guest today is McKay Garner. McKay is a producer, engineer, mixer, multi-instrumentalist, and composer. He's worked on records for artists such as the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Mike Shenandoah of Lincoln Park, Michael Buble, Dead and Company with Mickey Hart, and he's also worked on films such as the Transformers movie. He's worked in video games and television shows like Total Recall and America's Next Top Model and Grey's Anatomy, and he is my guest today. Very excited to have him on the show. McKay Garner, coming up here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Grab your coffee cups, friends. Let's talk about making podcasts. Let's have a big sip over this one. Mm. So podcasts. Many of you may have found during this pandemic that editing podcasts is certainly a form of work that can be done remotely, very easily. You know, a laptop, a pair of headphones, a DAW, you are off to the races. But what if you want to make a podcast? Well, I've got a few opinions about that, as you might imagine. And being that we are in this pandemic, it is driving a lot of you to say, I think I'm going to do a podcast. And I certainly don't want to discourage you, but I do want to give you some pointers, bits of advice from someone who's almost at his 300th episode. Never get yourself involved in a podcast that you have no passion for, especially if you're the host. It's like joining a band and hating the songs. Just don't join the band. You've got to be passionate about it. You got to not necessarily be an expert at it. You know, I don't think of myself as the all-knowing expert on audio. Gosh, I'm still learning stuff. And that's part of the joy of it, is learning as you go and picking up new ideas. But certainly do not get involved in a podcast that you just have no passion for because you'll do two or three episodes, realize what a pain in the ass it is, and you'll stop. Consistency. If you're gonna start a podcast, by all means, please people, be consistent. Don't do it whenever you feel like it. You're never gonna grow your audience that way. You gotta be consistent. You know, I treat this show like a television production in the sense that I put it out on a consistent basis. You know, sometimes I get it out on Sundays, but it's always out by Monday. The goal is Monday, but sometimes I like to, hey, I'm done, it's Sunday, why don't I just put it out? So between Sunday and Monday, it always comes out. Think of a show on television that you really enjoy and imagine if you go to watch it and there's a message that says, you know, sorry, the new episode will be out in a few days, just didn't get around to it. Or there's just no episode. You'd be like, what the hell? I was waiting to find out what happened. It's the same with podcasts. You know, if you do a couple or let's say you get on a roll, let's say you do four in a row, you put them out once a week. And then on week five, your new listeners are going to be pissed. They're going to be like, well, okay, obviously this person isn't serious. So consistency. You don't have to have an elaborate setup to do it. Although I'm going to just kind of put my two cents in on this from a technical gear perspective. I don't get why companies are always advertising podcast packages with condenser mics. I just don't get it. A dynamic mic like a Shure SM7, uh, a BP40 from Audio-Technica, 
or a ribbon mic, as long as the ribbon mic is hypercardioid, like the one I'm talking to you on right now. Uh, for this episode, I'm using, what am I using? I'm using a KU5A from AEA ribbon mics. Hypercardioid mic. Technically, a ribbon is a dynamic because it works on the same principles that a dynamic mic works on. Why do I say that? Well, because ask yourself, would you cut a vocal in the room you're doing a podcast in? If you're doing it in your kitchen, uh, unless you truly want the sound of the kitchen and its acoustic characteristics coming into your podcast, yeah, <laughs> just don't do that. So trust me, even if it's like a, a 57 or a 58, whatever, a dynamic mic is going to allow you to overcome the inadequacies of your acoustic environment better than a condenser mic. So that's something to consider. That's, you know, that's my two cents. You may disagree with that, whatever, but I, I do a dynamic mic every time. And, you know, I mean, I'm in my studio here, acoustic treatment, non-parallel walls. And even when I put a condenser mic up, I'm like, ooh, you can hear a fan or a hard drive or there's always something. Or, you know, I don't have a really good studio door, so I can always hear my wife talking to my kids, or I can hear the dog walking around the house with his nails hitting the wood floor. And he's a bulldog, so he breathes really heavy. So I always hear that. So yeah, dynamic mics, just do that. Now, editing is a key thing. Taking out filler words is really great. And I'm just gonna tell you right now, friends, I, I hate to burst your bubble, but speaking about myself as well as my guests, we all don't speak as eloquently as we may come off sometimes. There's a lot of filler words that get edited out of this show because we really want to make it a pleasurable listening experience for you. And also being able to edit out from an editorial perspective, things that just go down a rabbit hole, kind of like this podcast conversation. The other part of editing too is some people are built for it, some people are not. And I have found that I reached a point where I just had to hire Anne Marie to do it because I could do it and I could burn through it really quickly. But I was also just getting a little fried. I think it was the Butch Vig episode that Anne Marie came on board. She's great. I love having her on board because it really takes that chore off my plate. But don't expect to hire somebody up front. Uh, especially if you don't have sponsors to help cover the costs of your podcast, you're going to have to do it and you may hate it. So if you hate editing, you need to think that one through really clear or just don't edit. And if you don't edit, I hope that you are a pretty damn good talker because I'm the kind of person that when I hear a podcast, it just rambles on and on and on. Woo, I'm out of there. What else? You got to think about music, whether you have music that is safe or licensed. They, they call it pod safe, you know. Are you going to get sued? Are you going to get a cease and desist from putting out your podcast and using somebody's music you have no right using? I have a deal with the license lab so that the music you're hearing underneath this monologue right now is totally cleared due to my friends over at the license lab and former WCA guest Daniel Holter specifically. So thank you to Daniel. So find yourself a source of music that you can use this is just a personal gripe. Don't squash the living crap out of your podcast. Whatever bus compressor limiter, brick wall limiter thing you got going on, don't crush it, you know? Some people love to do that and it just makes an abrasive listening experience. And I know I've put out episodes that maybe sonically could use a little help, but all in all, I think, you know, I like to keep it not too crushed you know, moderately compressed. So I hope that's what you're hearing now. I hope that's what you're perceiving now. And back to the content thing, and then I swear I'll wrap this up. Really think about your content. 
you know, figure out if you're going to interview people. That's a whole nother ball of wax interviewing people because you got to figure out whether or not you're a good interviewer. You have to book guests. That can be a little tense sometimes if you're operating episode to episode. You could book a guest and then, of course, they can bail on you and then you're at the end of the week and you have no podcast. Believe me, I've been through all that. But the content, you need to make sure that you're doing something that, like I said before, not only are you interested in, but you really got to think through if other people are interested in what you're talking about. So I think, you know, if you're too narrow, too niche, you're going to have a hard time. Here's something that would be totally niche. J-card inserts for cassettes and discussing that. That's a show I would never subscribe to. I'd probably listen to one episode just to hear it, just to go, what the hell is this? But if I ever came across something like that, I would just be like, who listens to this? But, you know, I say that and, you know, when you see couples together and it's always like an odd match and you think, well, there's somebody for everybody. Maybe there's a listener for every podcast. I don't really know. Just think through your content. Make sure you got something compelling that holds people's attention. Because let me tell you, as you can tell, it's a lot of effort to do a podcast. And to do it weekly is also, you know, that adds to the to the uh, complexity. So if you're going to do it, make sure you check all those boxes. Anyways, I'm not going to rehash the list, but those are the basics. Think about it. If you're going to do a podcast, I wish you luck. It's a lot of fun. It is a lot of work, but... Man, I have learned so much from doing this show over the years that I just, you know, I just keep going. So hopefully if you're going to do a podcast, you can also experience that love of, of learning and connecting with people through the course of a show. That's it. Thanks for listening. Most of you already know about Grace Design and have known about them for years. Uh, they've been around since 1994. It was started by the two brothers, Michael and Eben Grace, who still run the company to this day. And you already know that they make incredible sounding products for us all. What you might not know, if you don't know them, is that Michael and Eben are two of the nicest people on the planet. Easily approachable, very knowledgeable. You might have met them at a trade show and experienced this. Without a doubt, it's one of my favorite companies out there in the world of pro audio. You might have heard me a few times talking about the Grace 908 Atmos controller. I think the most elegant solution, if you're going to be doing Atmos, that is the best solution out there, as far as I'm concerned, hands down. And prior to that, I was using the Stereo 905 controller for many years. Not only that, but most recently, I have used their 108 mic pre's to do the Room 219 combo jazz record that you might have heard me talk about. The point is, is that they check all the boxes for me. They're incredibly nice people. They make incredibly great products. They're located here in the United States in Lyons, Colorado, and employ a number of people. They're the epitome of a small business here in the U.S., and I just love that whole thing. So if you are in the market for mic preamps or instrument preamps or monitor controllers, this is the company to check out hands down. If you don't know about them, go to gracedesign.com, check them out. And if you're in the market for any of those products, you absolutely have to consider what they offer because what they offer is superior build quality and sound quality. And those of you who bought their products in the 90s that are still using them, you know exactly what I'm talking about. So check them out, gracedesign.com. I know the business of audio is a frustrating one sometimes. The audio part's pretty, pretty fun, but it's the business of it and the career part of it that's a little challenging to many of us. I can completely empathize with that. And if you thought to yourself, God, I wish I could talk to somebody about this, you can do that. You could talk with me about it. 
As a matter of fact, you can book me for a coaching and consulting call over Zoom very simply. Just head on over to workingclassaudio.com. If you click on the menu button, at the top of the menu, there is a link that says coaching and consulting with Matt. Super simple. Click on the link, book me in for an hour on a Zoom call, and we will discuss your particular situation, and I will help you get refocused, re-inspired, and figure out what is the best path forward for you. If your situation requires a little more extensive conversation, we can absolutely book a series of calls and, like I say, get you focused and get you moving forward. I've been there, and when you don't have anybody to talk to about it, it's a little frustrating. So head on over to workingclassaudio.com, click on the menu button, and book yourself in for a Zoom call with me. And we can sit down and chat, coffees in hand, ready to tackle the business of audio together. Let's get to it. McKay Garner here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. McKay, welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks, Matt. Good to be here, man. So you are talking to me from your very cool studio space in Oakland. Thanks for that. Very cool 80%, 95% done, maybe. <laughs> yeah, looks great. Thank you. Let's talk about right now, and then we'll... We'll catch up to the to the backstory. Yeah. What is it you're doing now? What does your career consist of now, day to day? It's funny. I've I've stayed pretty agile over the years. And I think life is kind of not about trying to figure out what you want to do. It's more about figuring out what you don't want to do. So you keep trying a bunch of stuff and go, I want to do that. And you figure out it's not really necessarily a thing I want to do all day. So you start doing more of the other things. So I'm doing a lot of mixing. I am back producing some things here and there, which I've been doing and enjoying a lot. I think the one side of production is is trying to navigate how you do a lot of work and make sure the back end is going to help propel the artist's career and also be something that's a good investment for you and your time too. But I do a lot of, a lot of mixing. I've been actually tracking because we're in the middle of this pandemic. So I've got a a project in particular that I was working on before we lost the lease on the last place I was my mix room. So I've been tracking over Zoom, which sounds crazy, but you and I discussed this a bit, but using remote controlling someone else's computer, DAW, remotely and punching in and out on their Pro Tools rig and creating new playlists and things while they do vocals or guitars and those kind of things and mixing for clients by sending them a, a mix via Audio Movers Listen To plugin. So it's actually really cool that all this can be happening, and it's almost like people just really want to make music. Maybe people are just crazy or something. <laughs> but it's it's like it never stopped. People didn't just go, okay, we're locked in, so let's not do anything. Everybody's like, oh, my God, I need to finish my record. I need to do these things, you know. So we're just we're just making it work, so... A whole lot of mixing, actual tracking, some production stuff as well, which will be new. Producing two records I'm working on now, producing these things remotely is just getting my head around a bit of the the vibe part of it, where everybody's on a camera and you're not in the room where you're used to, you know, working with a vocalist or you're you're used to working with the band on arrangements or songwriting or tempos. And it's not like you necessarily can be at rehearsal. If if you're locked down and mm-hmm. sitting in the room, just let's run it. Let's run it this tempo. Take this other take. You know what I mean? So it's gonna be pretty fascinating. I'm just finding that out the past week. Just kind of doing vocal coaching on takes and delivery, which isn't that hasn't been that much different because it's kind of like 
as it's always been if you're if you're in the control room and somebody's in the in the live room, you know, and you're looking through glass or you're looking through a camera or something. It's similar, but you can't just walk in the room and and breathe the same air and go get your vibe on of in person. There's this that extra little percentage that's like, oh, but so far it's been really great. The people I'm working with are super excited that they're getting stuff done and they can do it in their pajamas, you know. So it's just a matter of them not being in a soundproof studio and you got to pick the time of the day and it's like you're about to start recording vocals and you can hear somebody's spouse or dad in the other room talking on the phone you're like okay we should probably wait or maybe have a conversation and really trying to dial in their room to get things to sound good that's the beautiful beautiful part of like audio movers and those kind of things is because i can monitor what the mic is hearing and i can use their camera and just ask them to show me what their microphone is seeing and i can say hey let's move it three inches to the right or the left actually hear the results in real time so that's that's pretty cool that part's almost like having an intern in the other room going can you move the mic to the other left to the right yeah it's <laughs> pretty cool how does that like if somebody's playing a part and you're doing this remotely over zoom and audio movers how does that change your perception of the take i mean Are you seeing them do the performance or do they move the camera to a different spot because they may feel self-conscious? And I guess you are, the focus of the senses is slightly different because you're not in the same building. Yeah, that is part of what I'm saying about the vibration is distant. You're still going through some internet business, (laughs) but... So far, the the people I'm working with so far are are totally comfortable with the camera being on them. And and my couple studios in L.A., I had blinds that I could pull down over the control room glass in case somebody wanted to not feel like they were in a fish tank being observed. But currently, the people I'm working with are are like, yeah, let's put the camera here because it's basically like they're in front of me, in front of the microphone in the live room or something, you know, so or the booth. So, so far, that hasn't been a a comment from anyone that they feel like it's a voyeur kind of look at my webcam while I'm singing kind of thing. (laughs) (laughs) So far, not an issue. And I wonder after all this COVID business runs its course, I wonder if people will kind of grow tired of the traditional studio model of control room, live room or booth and have like open all in one studio so everybody can be together. I think we're all craving that. We all have that feeling kind of like in a band when we're all tracking together versus doing overdubs or one person at a time thing. That vibration is definitely something that we all miss. And the immediacy of just the technical part is like, if I want to walk in the room, I walk in the room. I don't have to go, well, let me mute your mic. And then I got to mute my mic. And then I got to press record this way. And then I got to change the camera angle. Those are just technical things that are a little bit in the way. But once you get your flow on, it really becomes... People focus on the music. It's just, I think for us, when we're engineering a session, it's trying to figure out a workflow that will get the technology out of the way as much as possible. Kind of like the difference of having a console full of knobs and being able to just grab a knob or a control surface with lots of things and just go, I just want to turn up 2K, you know, instead of going, well, I got to click this and scroll this and then move over to this thing and then (laughs) click on the plugin or something, you know, it's kind of that workflow thing. Well, so this is a new space that you're currently in, Mm -hmm. and this is a a house in Oakland that you're renting, and this is a space that's in the back of the house. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct. What a score. Yeah, you know, there's so much tied to that. For those people not in the Bay Area and unfamiliar with the market here, buying a house pretty much starts at a million dollars, and the rental market is super 
super expensive and high. So finding a spot that you can work in audio in particular is a challenge. And you've got the option of renting a commercial space, depending on the size you need and something that's really soundproof. It's $15,000, $2,000, $3,000 a month, depending on a smaller space to do production stuff. And you, you weigh out that over the year and go, hmm. How much is that, of course, out of your pocket from what you're going to try to make a living with? And then what's the overhead of that? And then you weigh it out against renting something like a house and you go, well, it's not built in, but what's what's the length of the lease currently? How much money am I willing to invest in getting this room to work in specific things? Is it just for mixing? Is it for actual tracking where you need it to be super duper quiet? What's the neighbor situation? (laughs) All that stuff. (laughs) And you look at at the numbers and go, how much time am I going to put into it and how much money and how much is that going to affect me and how much I'm going to get back? So the last place I was in was in San Francisco for 10 years and just built a mix room into where we lived. Like, I don't need a giant space and I don't plan to be tracking in there, which I eventually started tracking a lot more in that small space just because people wanted to. So, But this space, we looked at a lot. My wife is amazing at organization and she had all these beautiful spreadsheets and ratings of everything. And this is where we're going. And the map was all like, we need to see five in this area. And then we're going to see six in this time window. (laughs) So we did all that. And we found this ad of this house that just had a photo of the front, a photo of the living room and a photo of the bedroom. And we drove past and it looked really nondescript, cute little white house. And then we're like, oh, this is cool. This is nice when we got inside. And then we go to the back and we look and they're like, whoa, there's a yard and the driveway is really long and it's got a fence that's private backyard. And we look in the back and my wife goes, who lives back there? And we're looking at this building that's built behind the, the house. And the owner's like, oh, no, I just use that for storage. We're like, well, let's check it out. And it, it used to be a garage, but it had been all sealed up. So we walk in the door and I, I look in this space And it turns out the last people that lived here used it for music. And they didn't do like a pro job on the soundproofing and those kind of things. But it was a pretty big space in particular for a mixed production room. I was like, holy cow, this wasn't even advertised. And as as we're walking through the backyard to get to the space, there's these two giant redwoods. And the path goes through the yard. And then there's a stone path that goes through these redwoods to the back building. And none of this was in the ad anywhere, which was like a huge draw for me if I'd seen that. But my wife and I got, and I got really excited and we're like, this is the spot. The overhead of this versus having a place to live in another place was was lower and looked more attractive, though the work involved was initially less, <laughs> was just going to be a mix room. And then I saw the ceiling and went, hey, I could pull out the ceiling and get another three feet. And of course, that opened the can of worms. And, <laughs> <laughs> and was, that an, was that an easy sell to the landlord? You know, that was part of the sell for me. I was like asking him about this building and he's like, we just want you to stay a long time. And I, he said that several times. I just, I just want somebody that's going to stick around. I think maybe this is his retirement place. He bought another house across the way a bit. And he's like, do whatever you want. I said, hey, could I do this or this? And he's like, do whatever you want. Just, I, I just he use was this for. Very clear in the messaging there. Stay a long time and do whatever you want. Yeah. And I was like, go on. <laughs> <laughs> what else can I do? Tell me more. <laughs> So three months later, he's, he comes over and there's like construction stuff everywhere and 20 bags of drywall, you know, it's like, okay. 
B- bags of drywall. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, okay. <laughs> Ah, you took out the ceiling. Yeah. Oh, but bags of broken up drywall. <laughs> right. It's like, where do you buy bags of drywall? No, I, I, now I get it. <laughs> right. Yeah, I wish it were spray on. That would be amazing. Your wife, very supportive of what you do. Yeah, she's unbelievably amazing. We're both, we say, detrimentally supportive of each other. Almost no matter what each other says, we're like, yeah, you got to do that. <laughs> You, know, <laughs> you should do that. We're crazy supportive. I hear so many stories on the interwebs about my spouse won't let me do this, won't let me do that. And I get the it's a team. So you got to make those decisions together for sure. But she's very, very like, go for it. You know, we lost our lease on the last place we were in after 10 years and they gave us 60 days. They're like, we're going to remodel the building. You got to move because it's going to take six months or longer to do it. And all of a sudden I'm like, oh, hey, I don't have a studio and we're not going to have a place to live. So that's quite a splinter in the wheel of your life. So it, it was an upheaval, to say the least. So that, I think for both of us, it's a matter of just like, okay, there's a bit of panic and fear and all the stuff, that the stress that goes along with it. And we just kind of grab onto each other and go, okay, we're, we're going into curveball mode. And we just go at life that way. And same with the pandemic and several other things. It's frightening moments and curveballs come at you and you go, man, all right, it's lemonade time. <laughs> <You know? laughs> we got to go at it. And we, we're just super love birds, man. <laughs> well, so let's go back in time. Let's jump in the working class audio time machine, as it were. Where did you get involved in music and audio? That's funny. I think about this a lot because so many of my friends that are engineers or producers are drummers. And for the listeners, Matt is a a great drummer. I've heard some things you've done and I asked who it was and they're like, that's Matt Boudreaux. I'm like, what? (laughs) What? Anyway, regardless. That guy can't even spell. (laughs) So it's funny how many of my friends, and I bet many that have been on your podcast are like, oh yeah, I'm a drummer. Started out as a drummer. I feel like when you go to music school and they're like, okay, you're a percussion major or you're a drum major and you show up to class the first day and you're like, oh, this is an audio engineering class. How did I get in here? Oh, you're a drummer. You should be in this class. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny, but it's true. I started out playing drums and marching band and those kind of high school things and then got into the University of North Carolina School of the Arts as a music major and focused on percussion and various other things and playing in funk bands and rock bands at night and just music's in your bones and I think when you see that you go in the studio for the first time for me it was I was 16 I went to this studio and the first time you hear playback of the drum kit that you've been practicing on and playing to the radio and the other things and you think you know so well and you hear the sound of the kit you can have so many different reactions of like oh that doesn't sound like it at all or whoa that sounds amazing and your curiosity immediately goes how does that happen you know i think for a lot of drummers maybe that's something related because the drum kit can be kind of hard with so many microphones in some instances to wrangle and you realize those relationships make such an impact on the emotional feeling that you get from the recording itself so then you're asking questions and stuff and like what's this do and <laughs> when i was 16 i first went in the studio the engineer i started playing sound check kind of thing and then he came in there and go okay we're gonna do some stuff to the toms and his assistant came in with a literally a box of maxi pads and started sticking them on my toms and i'm like 
what does this do? And I started playing them and listened to the playback and the difference that he showed me. And I was like, wow, just that little bit of what the microphone is is seeing based on where it's placed was a real kind of awakening for me. All that kind of led down the road of the engineering path, which I wasn't thinking I wanted to go into because at first it felt like it, it was a technical thing and not a music thing. And as I got more into wanting to be a producer in my early 20s and arranging and working on like workstations, all in one sequencers and those kind of things and working with vocalists, I realized that timbre and space and all the things that we think of for recording and, and mixing, all those things were part of the the feeling, the emotion, the what was in the DNA of why I like that recording or if I'm at a concert listening around and going, wow, it sounds really great in this part of the room and this part sounds totally different. So for me, that's kind of where all that merged, you know, somewhere down the line. Where did the world of professional audio and music start to enter into the equation? When did you start getting paid or, or entertain the idea of mm-hmm. getting paid? That's interesting because I was doing a lot of touring as a drummer and thought that that was going to be my path and started to get a little less interested in that because of the ups and downs and amount of work of the drummer being there first and last with all that gear. I think touring in Duluth at minus 70 degrees and loading my gear in and out, I was like, huh, this is a tricky gig right here started me thinking about all these other things and started getting into production. And at first it was just, it was demos. I happened to buy a workstation at some point and I started making my own recordings. My buddy, John Fifner in North Carolina is just an amazing, just ridiculous songwriter, engineer, producer, guitar player. He got me set up with a four track. He owned a four track and then got an eight track, 688, if anybody remembers those cassette machines. Mm Mm-hmm. And then went to reel to reel. And so he got me set up with how to use the, I think, a four track first and then the 688. And I started recording myself and making demos and stuff and didn't quite know what I was doing, of course. But I was writing songs and I was doing drum sessions for this guy who owned a record label from L.A. was in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, which is where I was from. And John and I were in a band together and we had started recording a bunch of stuff. And I was at the same time recording some of my own things. And we had a production deal in Nashville for the band that we were in. And that was another part of the journey is learning from this amazing engineer named Rocky Schnars in Nashville. That dude could make anything sound great. And his vibe was such a, a great thing to be around. But that production deal the A&R guy changed so that didn't go where we thought it was going to go and we were like what are we going to do next we're still playing but I'm trying to write some of my own stuff too because we're all kind of like okay we're not really sure what's next I gave some demos to this guy who was hiring us to do some recording for his artists and he ended up asking me if I wanted to sign to his label and I was like well, what else do I have going on? <laughs> so I said, yeah, you know, and I, I was doing a lot more writing at the time. And I think it was more based on my songs were pretty catchy. My singing was not amazing, but I was like, okay, I, can, I think I can do this enough to sing my own songs and stuff. And I signed to that label. They sent me, we all went to L.A., supposedly for six weeks. And at that time, I bought a better workstation, started doing my own demos, syncing a TS-10, and Insonic TS-10 to a four-track and learning more about production and 
he started asking me to produce some of his other artists that he was working with on the label. So next thing you know, we're at Westlake with actual engineers doing these great recordings synced off my workstation. And then I'm replacing the drums with real drums and then we're bringing in horn sections and stuff. And after I, I kind of started getting some chops together with doing better demos, I started getting hired after the, the label thing lasted maybe a couple years. It's been a while. But my next thing was like, what am I going to do? Am I going to try to get another deal somewhere in L.A.? In the meantime, I'm doing demos for people for like a dollar, you know, <laughs> just like <laughs> super, like how can I buy some tacos? <laughs> so it's me and an 8-track. I think at that time it was a Tascam 238 sync cassette and a workstation. And I uh, started doing demos for people for maybe like 15 bucks an hour or something. And someone asked me, they're like, I, I really like, working with you and I like what you are creating with my sound would you be interested in producing producing my record the actual record and I'm like well yeah it sounds better than working in an office at this point and uh, he said I'll buy all this gear and you basically run the studio and you commit to working on my record x days a week and then the other off times you can work with clients so I'm like oh okay I guess I'm learning pro tools <laughs> I didn't even know what that was much. I take that back. I knew what it was, but uh, I hadn't worked with Pro Tools or those things yet. I'd worked with Opcode Vision and some other things. So that kind of set my pants on fire, so to speak, of I need to learn how to do this. So I think one of the best things is we hired Chris Minto from Westlake, who had done like Pat Benatar and all these other really cool records. Another guy with lots of experience and just amazing vibes. You just want to be around him. And he'd come over and... and sh- show us how to mic up the drums for different sounds and things like that. And then we hired Tavi Mote to mix my buddy's record. And I just sat behind him as he was doing some stuff. And then he was like, why don't you sit here and I'll just tell you what to poke at in Pro Tools. And he'd be like, turn this snare up at 2K by 1 dB. And just kind of having somebody who really knows what they're doing behind you was like, you just can't substitute for that. So that's the convergence of all that stuff. It just was more of a, I'm really interested in this and how can I not do something besides music? So I'm I'm creating music and I'm helping other people create music. And that just seems like the most fun job, as you know. Did you have any culture shock coming from North Carolina to California? Yeah, well, I had moved to Minneapolis around 1990 because I was way into the funk scene. Still love funk, but Prince was still really big. So I followed that. And that was kind of my taste of a bigger city and got to see so many legends and do so many cool things there. It was just probably the most exciting musical point of my life. But then moved back to North Carolina for that that production thing with in Nashville. And then moving to LA is like a completely different, I mean, the scale of LA, as you know, is, is so massive. I didn't feel like culturally necessarily it was a shock. There were some areas of LA that was like, oh, I haven't heard of this country and there's so many people here. I'm really excited to see what this is all about. <laughs> and what kind of food is this? This is amazing. So the positive stimulus of that and the friends that I made there in a short amount of time was just, it's part of my DNA now. Those people were so welcoming that I was fortunate enough to meet up with as I was navigating the pressure of a label and the moving from being behind the kit to go, oh, we're moving you out to LA and you're going to do some shows and you're going to advertise your face and stuff. It's like, that's a lot of pressure. Well, so... How long did you stay there in L.A.? Total, like, 14 years or so. Yeah. What was your takeaway from 
that experience over that 14 years? So much. I, I feel like, like all of life, some of it is like, whoa, that was a horrible moment right there. And mm. wow, that was so inspiring in parallel, you know, these serial and parallel events that are happening. So overall, I mean, from a career standpoint, the development that you get from hands-on experience and the pool of people that intermingle in LA 20-some years later, I, I'm still working with the same, some of the same people for sure. I'm like, I've got the person that needs to play on this track. So we just send stuff down to my friend in LA and you just watch them. They were really great before and now they're just amazing. From a friendship, career standpoint, and inspiration standpoint, those things are just still a big deal. You know, I had some negative experiences as well, just like most of life, you try to navigate like, oh, wow, those particular approaches to music or a client, that particular client kind of vibe is something that one of those life lessons I learned, okay, I don't want to do that, <laughs> you know, or those particular interactions are things I would like to avoid. And let me focus on these other vibey, positive things. I remember when I first met you, you came up to San Francisco and you were very proactive in reaching out to people. I can't sure. even exactly remember how it came about, but I just remember you showing up at my studio in San Francisco and sitting mm -hmm. there on the couch. And I just thought, well, for a guy from LA, this guy like blends in really quickly and seems like already a part of the scene was my recollection. Obviously, I, I love L.A. There's nothing against anybody in L.A., but yeah. sometimes there's a little rivalry between Northern and Southern California, and yeah. some people have that, we'll call it the L.A. vibe, and I'm sure right. people say that about, you know, oh, those Northern Californians. So, I don't know. I just I felt very uh, at ease with you as you came into town, and I thought, oh, this guy will be a great addition to the community. Why did you choose to come here? That's really interesting, and I've been asked that before. Like, why would you move from L.A., which is a massive market, to potentially a smaller market? I think the Bay Area is amazing, and that was part of the draw for me. I had just finished a band that I had, had just finished a bunch of stuff, and we decided to call it quits. And I was selling my L.A. studio to build a mix room behind our house because I started doing a lot more mixing and started getting more major label work. And I'm thinking that's the trajectory of like, okay, I'm moving from this particular part of my career into this other career where I'm going to be doing more of this kind of work. So I'm like, I kind of want to just focus more on mixing. I felt like financially it was a move that was going to put me in a spot where I can mix this number of records. And then the rest of the time I could focus on creative endeavors, whether it's my own compositions or songwriting or working with people by choice, not based on whether or not they could afford my rate or some other crazy thing. So San Francisco and the Bay Area, we had several places on my on our radar. When I say my radar, there was a definitely a career side of it that played into it for my wife and I is where is an area that I feel like I can still work. And in, in my head, this was around 2009, 2008, we started planning a little bit. It took us six months, I think. Something like that. Maybe six weeks. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> six but, hours. Uh, some of the contenders were, of course, Nashville was one of those because it was just starting to, I mean, Nashville's been around forever and been a hotbed, but it was getting hotter as far as the music is concerned in all genres. That was one of those. We, we talked about the Bay Area. We talked about Toronto. We talked about, I think, Raleigh in North Carolina because it's 
it's a beautiful place and it's affordable to buy a house and those kind of things. But the Bay Area was pretty close to L.A., And it's amazing. We both love the nature. And for me, there were a lot of records that were coming out of here and history that seemed to blend art and technology. People were really not thinking about the commercial success necessarily of the art part of it and no dig at all on commercial music because I love that too. They're all specific art forms in their own. But I was interested in a lot of crazy sound design and those kind of things. And there were so many things that were coming out of the Bay Area that people were just doing things that were so nuts. Yeah. And I just kept hearing that stuff and going, what is going on in the Bay Area on the art side? And then technology was just exploding and you've got things going on like Karma at Stanford and things at Berkeley and Mills College and all these places that are just going nuts. And I I feel like a lot of that stuff is in all forms, whether it's dance or music or visual arts, people that are just going totally nuts and pushing left of center or whatever and not even thinking about, will I ever sell this? That stuff seems to be like the reaction at first is like, what the heck is this? Yeah. But it starts to get filtered into the commercial stuff eventually because people start to understand it. But at first, it's like the first time you ever had curry, if you've never had it, and you're like, what the heck? And then like six weeks later, you're like, yeah, I bought 17 kinds of curry now. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And and I just want to interject quickly. I don't want to mean to interrupt, but thinking about the Bay Area and thinking about all the different types of music. There's Primus, Faith No More, The Residents, but then it also extends to hip-hop, speed metal, or thrash metal, and right down the center with the Counting Crows, Mm -hmm. kind of more mainstream stuff. Yeah, It's pretty amazing what has come out of the Bay Area in in the years, in, in all these years. Yeah, including all the crazy modular synth world and the crazy sound design kind of in tape music and ambisonics work and both in audio and music and the merging of audio or field recordings and things like that, that you may not think of music and people hearing it as music and integrating it into things. For me, some of that stuff just hearing Richard Devine and several people doing talks in LA and you're like, okay, he went out and recorded a whole bunch of crickets and some forest noises and stuff. And he's like, okay, I'm going to play this. And then here's how I morph it into this other thing. And seeing people take stuff like that and turn it into music, completely all that stuff changed the way I look at all music, even some traditional forms. I feel like I'm always looking for a way to to not just look at it as like, this is ketchup, so I must use this particular recipe. Sometimes, especially if you're producing something for someone else, you've got to find out what their vision is. And in my case, not necessarily try to insert so that everybody sounds like me, but your perspective is your perspective. So you chose San Francisco, ultimately. And how long has it been since you've been here in the Bay Area? 11 years as of this month. Unbelievable. Wow. Seems like you've been here longer. Really? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it just seems it like, like 10 really? Minutes Is that me. it? 11? That's a drop in the bucket. <laughs> yeah, man, it seems like 10 minutes. I mean that in the best possible way. I hope that, I hope <laughs> oh, that God, you've been here forever. Yeah. Oh, God, when are you leaving? <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, our friends over at DistroKid have created the DistroKid app for Android, which allows you to do some key things such as check your stats from Apple and Spotify, edit release metadata, upload new releases, and a host of other features. And remember, WCA listeners get 30% off your first year at DistroKid. 
And if you just head on over to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30, you can follow the link, get your 30% off and be off to the races. So check our friends out at DistroKid and make sure and get your 30% off by going to workingclassaudio.com slash WCA30. About a year and a half ago, I signed up for Sampley.app and I have to report back and say that I'm completely thrilled with it and it's working out quite well. It gives me the ability to upload mixes and masters to the website and provide a super pro looking interface for my clients. They can drop comments in the timeline. They can listen on any device. They can listen to it in high res. And if I want them to pay for the mix or master before they download it, because of the Stripe integration, I can set that up. There's also Dropbox integration, which allows me to quickly create a folder in my Dropbox, which automatically syncs with Samply, makes it much more simple. You should check it out for yourself, but there's a deal to be had. So use the code WCA20. Go to Samply.app or Samply.app. Use the code WCA20, get 20% off, and you'll be off to the races. It's a fantastic tool that I think you're going to enjoy and will definitely make you look a lot more pro when you're delivering files to clients. Skip that whole business where you send it to them over Dropbox. That looks totally amateur at this point. Use Samply.app and use that code WCA20, and I think you're going to be really thrilled. Sampley.app. Check it out. So there's a part of you, I don't know you all that well, but my perception of you is that you're such a multifaceted person. You know, there's the engineer side of you. There's the artist side of you. There's also this technical, very deep thinking side of you that comes across to me. You mentioned Bay Area and technology or art and technology. And technology seems to be something that is important to you to some degree. Am, am I am I wrong in my thoughts about you? Well, there's I'm definitely interested in that stuff. And I think it's so funny because I think growing up and getting into music, I had this perception like there were two communities. And I think a lot of people have this right brain, left brain view of like the engineers are over here and then the musicians are over here and there's just some divide or something between them. But the more I studied music and arranging and timbre and playing an instrument, and then the more I studied engineering and timbre and envelopes and all of those things, I realized that they're so related that just setting up a compressor or an, an EQ is basically just potentially a bunch of faders that change the, the balance of a mix and how that relates to arranging and the arrangement affects the mix and the way you arrange things is part of like EQing and then you add timbre and all those things in there and that's part of the feeling of, for me, it's, it always comes back to like Quincy Jones talking about recipes and cooking most of the time i'm talking about music and burritos it's like that balance of flavors and how they come at you determine the feeling you get the experience you get as you're having a meal or something so i feel like my wife's similarly she she was playing cello when i met her and she's also very technical she started her own tech company some years ago and she and i talk about this a lot like for the perception that you can only have one or the other. You can only be an artist or you can be a technical person. Mm. That one of those is not, you can't develop both or something. And I, neither one of us believes that's true. You can really be excited about it. I think the battle for some of us that you're a musician as well, that 
you try to figure out how not to let your technical brain take over when you're in music mode and get too wrapped up in the sonics of something for too long and miss the moment where the antenna to the universe is is channeling some inspiration through if that signal goes away while you're trying to tweak something you've kind of missed your whole gig there (laughs) so i'm fascinated by the interaction of the technical side and i think getting in like i say sound design and those kind of things and mixing and recording timbre and music and attack release sustain decay all those things are part of an entire listening experience listening to an orchestra or a big band as much as it is with programming synthesizers or picking a mic pre based on the slew rate what the transient response of this microphone is versus this one and those kind of things are completely just trying to, in a micro way maybe, arrange the feeling that you're going to get when you hit play. You know, it's funny. I feel that as much as I really don't play drums very often, in fact, I don't think, I can't even remember the last time I played drums. It's probably been two, three years, honestly. Drum sets are in the shed, in the backyard, and I think that... Having said that, I feel like my musical background has kept me positioned in a place of not sweating, you know, what is the slew rate, like you said, or just getting too engineery. I yeah, think yeah. there's a technical aspect that I've maintained, but at the same time, I've kind of maintained a balance of not going too deep down that rabbit hole. Totally. Similarly, those faders are balancing this, themselves out because I go down the rabbit hole of really wanting to know. I really want to know how that thing is designed and because I want to know the effect of it musically. Like, am I going to choose transformers and what kind is it going to be? And if I'm going to reach for a piece of gear, what does turning the input up of this device do to the low end? So it's really just like a musical choice similar to like which snare drum I'm going to pick as a player or mm-hmm. which piano I want to play on. Is it a Yamaha or is it a Steinway? But you get curious, like, huh, I wonder how that's made and how come this one affects me this way? And Well, <laughs> how do you approach production with people? What is your mindset of making a record with somebody? What do you bring to the table for them? Definitely first off is like listening to as much as I can, both of, of what they're creating and what they want to do with it. What's their mission? Is it all about the art or is there some other strategic thing? Like I want to do this because I want to get these kind of gigs or this is the kind of record I want to make on this label and I want to make this and the label wants to make that. Those are the conversations are like, okay, which of the parts, how are we going to get to the art? Who are you? What do you want to say as an artist right now? Because everything that I do is going to be shoved to the side in some way that the artist is out there performing. They're doing the interviews. It's got their name on it. What is it you really want to say? And the conversations about what that means. Like some artists, as you know, will not really know exactly an idea of what instruments they want to use, what timbres they're trying to create. Is it supposed to sound somewhat vintage or very modern? Is it super clean? Is it dirty? I ask a lot first what you want to say in, and I don't mean in technical terms or musical terms, just like on a like an environment side, like what kind of room are we walking into when we put on your record? Where are you? What is it you have to say? And for some people, it's song to song. They have very different approaches to each song and some of it may not be a story from first song to to song number 10 that they're trying to tell it may just be like hey when i wrote this song i was in this mood and when i wrote this song i was in this mood Mm -hmm. 
I think those are the conversations in particular is like, is this an overall message you're trying to create? Or are we creating different rooms in this house for each song? And go, okay, we're in the blue room and we're in the yellow room. And this room's really busy and this room's really minimal. So those are just kind of feelings about what's the emotion? What are you looking to get at the end? Because that's really it. The arrangement, the tempo, the key, all those things affect the feeling that we're the reaction we're going to get and is that reaction the message that you're trying to to convey for the record we have talks about that usually like what are you about what are you trying to say and then what are you not getting currently from where you are if there's something like that and i'll have my own reactions to the demos or something a lot of times i may ask for more demos than hey, I want to do six songs and here are the six I want to do. And sometimes there's three other ones that are in the bag that are 40% done. And I may hear it a different way and go, wow, this is amazing. What do you think if we did this? And all of a sudden that's the song they want to do. I think it's important to kind of just have the vibe with each other and see if you feel the trust that you're going to go into this having a baby thing together, you know? (laughs) Because all of a sudden I'm the stranger coming in going, oh, your baby's really cool, but I'm wondering if we could trim the ears a little bit or something, you know. It's such a delicate thing that you got to really trust somebody to say, what do you think about this? And not for them to just sidestep it to try to flatter you. But that's not my approach is to say this sucks or something like that. I really want to be there to inspire and then not say that's horrible or those kind of things or saying, well, let's try these other things. And what do you think about this? And it comes down to what the artist is feeling. But sometimes the process is a little bit vague as you're going through it because there may be four notes in a chord. And if you just hear the two that are half step from each other, you get a feeling, but you add the other two and all of a sudden you're like, oh, that's a completely different feeling. So the trust factor of the arrangement and the production process has to be a little bit about, okay, this is a relationship that we're creating and we have to both be willing to completely go for it and not be afraid to do horrible stuff and make bad decisions because I honestly believe that's how you get to the good stuff. If you've got to go through a hundred different layers to get from using layer one and two with layer number 99, that sounds amazing, then it's worth it. But Ideally, it's easy and it all just makes sense as you go. But I just really think the trust of just going for it and letting them know that I'm going to do some stuff that I'm going to end up hating and stuff they're going to end up hating. But if we're not just going for it, that we're literally just trying to be careful the whole way and the record can kind of sound careful, you know. How do you navigate the the financial end of it so everybody's content? Because mixing and mastering and even recording, those are like... Those are things that I find simple from a financial perspective. You could put a price on that and say, I'm going to do your mix for this. I'm going to master this for this. Mm -hmm. Production is tough in my eyes because it can stretch on for a long time. It's like building a house Mm -hmm. and there's lots of change orders that are happening all the time Mm -hmm. from the client. So pricing it out and, and creating a back end, I've just never mastered that. And I'm really curious to know how you handle it. (laughs) That's a great and horrible question. (laughs) (laughs) Next. Uh, Yeah. Next question, please. Let's talk back to burritos. (laughs) Yeah, let's talk about burritos. I feel like that's one of the things that I'm best at 
is that interaction with an artist and digging into the production side of trying to get the emotion across. But it's hard to have a, a negative view of how art is being consumed and whatnot in some ways because it's easy for us, especially the ones of us that have been doing it for a number of decades. I just don't want to die having a negative outlook, a sour old engineer or producer or musician in any way. I think the agility part is like, oh, I'm in a new kind of room. So how do I react to this? Coming from doing indie stuff and then going into label stuff. And when labels were a bigger thing where you're like, this is a specific budget and your your whole back end is based on record sales and these other things that had a real factor, it was easier to look at and go, okay, I'm going to do this particular project for a flat fee on this part of the the front end of the project. And then the back end, I'm okay with expecting some kind of sales of some sort. And perhaps the licensing end of the masters and those kind of things. That stuff has changed so much, you know, since 2008, I'd say, that I'd started to get out of production because many of us are so passionate about trying to get the end thing to get there, no matter what it takes. And usually for indie artists, the budget isn't there. With labels, it seems in a lot of ways, it feels so much easier because everybody in the chain from the musicians that were signed usually know what they're doing in a way. And the producers know what they're doing if it's not me and I'm mixing or if if I'm working with a band or a solo artist, they've got all these musicians that are great. So if I'm producing something and I can either use my own musicians or use other people, everybody in the chain is so good. So it's a lot easier to hit the target. But as labels started shifting more to the percentage of indie artists that are out there that are trying to make a go at it, the chain, as you know, from a technical side and a production side is just so much less funding going on because now the artist is fronting the marketing budget and the pressing budget and all those things. So looking at that for me started getting me more and more into, let me just mix because especially I play different instruments enough to get the record done. And sometimes with especially indie stuff, it's if it's singer songwriter, I'm supposed to play all the instruments and sound design, those things. It's a lot slower for me to sit there and go, okay, I'm going to work out a bass part and a guitar part, drum part, synthesizer programming or piano or something. I got to learn each part and create it first. And when you got a band or you've got other musicians working on it, they're all doing that at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that could be done in a day versus me sitting there going, okay, let's see. Boom, 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 boom. Oh yeah, that's it. It takes forever. So looking at the time, from an economic standpoint going, wow, is this going to be 40 to 60 hours per song? And what's the front end of an indie artist that's able to pay for that? Most of them in particular is just, wow, okay, that that would be okay if the back end is, is promising. And luckily over the years, I've, I've made some contacts where I can be like, all right, I'm pretty sure I can get this license and it's going to come back on the back end some way or it used to be maybe I can get this person signed because I know particular attorneys or A&R people or something. Now it's the back end was related to two things in particular were sale, record sales, and licensing to TV and film and those kind of things. As you know, that stuff changed drastically over the past 10 years or so is that major labels, the licensing for those tracks that used to cost a quarter million dollars or a hundred thousand dollars for a TV show or something or a movie just went down into the indie price bracket. So your competition is, is now that. Also, 
for TV and film, a lot of, especially TV, the front end used to be a lot more and there was more back end. And then some production companies started making their own publishing companies. So you're splitting the front end in particular started going down where the license for the master, the that master sync fee started going down because you're splitting it now with your publisher and with the production company that's working on the, the show itself or the film. Watching all that stuff go, well, that used to be the back end that we do all this work for. And now the back end has been changed a lot. And newer artists aren't aware of this. And it's still like, hey, I can make money on this. So for us who have are coming from going, okay, these are the numbers that we used to work with, to going, whoa, these are way different and lower. And the Spotify of the world and those kind of things are like, wow, what is the value? Because it's it's a personal investment for me to do this at a much lower rate up front, expecting a back end. And if the back end has been completely chipped away, you're like trying to figure out new ways for the back end. And back in the day, it used to be more about, well, don't sign a production deal that has anything to do with publishing as an artist. And these days it's like, what is the back end? Is it streaming? Chances are no. Yeah. Is it the master sync? On the master, because as a producer, you know, if you didn't write the song, you don't have publishing. And if the master literally, like I've got a whole bunch of music from myself and other people that I've produced that got licensed to TV and still out there working his stuff. Back then, there was an upfront of some sort. And now there's so many people splitting it or there is no front. My publisher I've worked with for almost 20 years is just like, yeah. There's no front. There's no sync fee. It's all back end <laughs> on some of these TV placements, a lot of them. Does it make you want to change your your methods of what you're doing? I mean, you said, you know, you're getting more into mixing more as a primary activity. So if it's not viable, are you shifting gears as a result? It's funny because as we discussed, I started getting more into mixing because I'm like, oh, well, I can do this in a day and it's fun and I make this much versus production that your heart and soul is in it for weeks at a time and you're not sure what's going to come after that. And if you're doing that for a much lower rate, it becomes a question of like, wow, financially, it's much higher risk than it used to be. The thing that started popping up for me is the fun part, you know what I mean? <laughs> I feel like for all of us, production is in the bones because there's such a musical connection to you. You're digging into the song and what's the best version of the song and what's the best way to get the phrasing right for vocals and instruments and so the emotion comes across. So there's this this passion part of it, that, not that there's not in mixing, but this is start to finish. So especially you know after mixing you realize how much the arrangement and the emotion of the production itself affects the mix and when that stuff is good the mix is a lot easier to to come across emotionally with impact when you're trying to use the mix to create events <laughs> that are maybe so to speak deficiencies maybe in the arrangement or some energy that the client wants in the mix that you're like that energy is just not in the arrangement so I'm pulling out all the tricks of like well if I saturate this and I put delay on this and I pitch this up an octave so it blooms in the chorus and those kind of things you're looking at it going well if the production process were part so deep in the emotion of raising the child before it got sent to finishing school, so to speak. The passion is something that I really like doing. I had a conversation with an attorney here in the Bay Area because I had gotten out of doing indie production for 
the past many number of years here in the Bay Area because of the numbers, but I've started getting into it a bit more and looking at my old contract was like, oh, this is talking about something that doesn't really exist anymore. This is not the model of this. So you're, you're trying to figure out how can I be a positive contribution to elevating the artist community. I can't afford to do it for free at this point. I wish I could all the time. You might have a pet project here and there where you're like, okay, this will just be back end or something. But for most of us, that's not a reality. And you go, well, I have operating costs and all those things. So how can I possibly not cripple the artist by taking 100% of the recording fund if they do get a deal, which they may never get a deal. And that's not really the model. How do I not cripple them with all this publishing on the back end, but what is actually the back end anymore? How do I do it? And I've started doing it more. I've come up with a model just this past year of like, you know what? I'm just going to work hourly, which this is an experiment for me because I don't mix hourly and I don't usually set a production thing based on an hourly thing because hourly means the clock might run out, meaning the money might run out and you can't determine if it's good enough yet. Stop in the middle, but I kind of feel out the budget first and go, what's your overall budget? And then we'll kind of determine if we can do one song or five songs or 10 songs. Yeah. Well, I'll have to check back in with you on how (laughs) how that's going in a year. Yeah, yeah. Tell me about survival, your approach to money, your approach to business, sticking it out in, in doing something that you enjoy doing and not doing the things you don't enjoy doing. How would you summarize all of that? Well, at the start, I've been horrible at some of it and workable at others, like many people, I think. Those of us like you have been doing it a long time. It's a situation where you can't compare yourself to other people because people's opportunities and paths just kind of come when they come. I have this kind of feeling like you're just a phone call away because of my experiences of like, oh, wow, I've got $4. And then the next day I get a phone call and it's like, oh, I got a gig paying me more than I've ever paid. And you just got to stay true to your vibe and keep working on what you do well. But for me, the agility has been kind of key of like, well, I have enough of these particular skill sets that if I have to survive, I can do this one particular thing. I feel like the service industry is something you can really do well. And of course, there are so many examples of famous mixing engineers and famous session musicians and things who have have done well their whole life. But I think in the working environment to define working class audio is there's so many engineers and producers and session players that are not loaded. They're like, hey, you know what? I was able to buy this place and this one thing, or I can rent a nice apartment in a city I want to be in or something and do something I passionately love. It's not a scale that you measure necessarily against someone else's success. So I feel like that agility is kind of key and not getting sour just because the model is different from it was the other day. You got to go, oh, interesting. How do I work in this environment? How do I stay agile enough to go, I'm going to focus on this thing now. That's been kind of my vibe is how can I stay agile and listen to what the community is telling me it needs and how can I work in that? I believe in particularly that the service industry being a, it has an endpoint. Each job is like, I'm going to place this mic for you for three hours and that's going to be $7. (laughs) And I'm going to mix this song and that's going to be $12. And when it's done, I get my $12. But products, having something that keeps paying you is something that I feel like is useful for everyone to kind of focus on. I had a buddy who I was producing a band in LA 
at my first studio in Pasadena. I'd done a demo with them, and then that studio burned down. Hey, nice story. So <laughs> I was building a new studio, and this band wanted me to produce their record. This is first I did demo with them. They're like, I want you to produce this record. So they prepaid some of that to help build the new place. And it turns out the guitar player worked at WEA. So he's doing the Warner Chapel library and licensing that for them to TV and film and those kind of things. And he ended up being a music supervisor for several TV shows. And as we got to know each other, he was like, hey, you know, you play other different instruments and things and you can do whole tracks by yourself and you can mix it and whatnot. That skill set means that you could be busting out some licensed tracks, some library tracks and things. And he, he broke it down to me, like how this stuff can keep paying you for a long time. And the difference between doing an hour's worth of work for $2 and then doing that hour's worth of work for $0, but having it pay you, you know, $700 over the next 10 years is like, whoa, that's a $700 an hour thing. For me, I started doing some of that in between recording bands and then producing some singer-songwriters and doing miscellaneous gigs here and there in my studio. I'd be like, you know what? Friday is free. I'm going to bust out these tracks. And he would send me emails going, I need this kind of thing. So I started doing some of that. And those are instances that I think is really important for everybody to think about and that I'm, I'm thinking about even more in this COVID era is content is something that like a record that can keep paying you in either monetary ways or in visibility ways or in your legacy of helping the community make the best art or technology stuff it can. I feel like that stuff ended up paying me and still paying me for like 20 years later is that having enough of that content out there. And Mm -hmm. it turns out that some of it that, that may have taken longer just sat around and really didn't get used. And then some of that stuff ended up on some TV shows that got really popular and the trajectory of that stuff. And he told me, he's like, it's going to be nine months before you see you see a dime if it got placed tomorrow. And at first it's like, oh, I got a placement. My first placement is so exciting, you know? And then it was like, oh my God, I got my first 12 cent check, you know? And then the next three months later, it's like, I got my first $27 check. And then it was like hundreds or thousands of dollars just from that same one day's worth of work that that stuff started climbing based on the opportunity. So those are kind of like darts you throw out there and some of them are going to miss the board and some of them are like, whoa, having enough of that content out there, somebody's going to grab onto it. And this has happened to me several, several times where someone saw something, content that I'd put out, like even obscure stuff, like really crazy. I I put up this really crazy electronic drumming thing that was IDM music and really crazy experimental sound design stuff. And Someone saw that and recommended me as this the drummer on this TV show that they needed somebody crazy electronic drumming in the house band. And it had like 10 views or something, this video, you know. And all of a sudden I'm I'm on NBC and I'm I'm making a grip of money for playing 808s and other things on a drum cat. And that's part of that. Like if you just only doing service work, it may give you a long career and great, but that same producer back in Nashville used to tell us the same thing 30 years ago something uh, you, you gotta make some he used to say you gotta make some hamburgers man sometimes you gotta go in there and make a cheeseburger people want it people want this you know this salmon with the holidays or something that's your art you know but you gotta make some cheeseburgers you know so <laughs> kind of took that as like okay well doing some library tracks or something is like 
it's fun because I'm, I'm learning new production skills. Like I need this kind of track and I had to learn what kind of reverb that used and stuff that I may not be doing normally. And stylistically, I'm like, oh, I need to learn to play this kind of bass or something for this one track. But putting that stuff out there was like, wow, that's really padded the blow of some of the lemons and helped some lemonade come out of that by putting out those content things that you're like, you know what, this is one day spent that may not just pay me today. And I can't think that was Matt Kirst who did that. Oh no, he's going to get a thousand calls. That's good though. (laughs) (laughs) Just a wonderful guy, wonderful friend, mentor on all that stuff. So so that's interesting. Just so the takeaway of that is, is be thinking that those one-off projects you do are fine and they'll give you some immediate money, but long-term, if you can come up with something that generates, as we used to say, mailbox money or passive income, yeah. That's the way to go. Yeah, I think for musicians and audio engineers and all those things, content is kind of like when people talk about getting the real estate. It's those things that can increase in value because for me, it's having some of that stuff out there that consistently gets used, not just once, but in different scenarios where that same track and same same for your own material I feel like you've got to determine what you're comfortable with as an artist. But if you can take, you know, you're doing a record that's an art project and it's vocals and a whole bunch of other instruments, sometimes just making sure that you you mix and master an instrumental version or, or get the stems of those and maybe even break it down to some alt versions because occasionally a track that may get placed in something can get shot down because the organ solo is right in the frequency of the vocal or it's too busy or something. So they're like, yeah, we can't use that track. But eventually they started using stems more and they're like, oh, just mute the organ. (laughs) And if you're okay with that as an artist, those opportunities could be like, well, yeah, this is a big driving punk song, but literally if you solo the vocal of this and you just add an acoustic guitar instead and have this alt version, it's, it gives you a completely different feeling. And as as we see in movie trailers and a lot of Netflix shows and stuff, you'll see covers of songs done by artists who have changed the voicings of the chords or they went from heavy guitar into some ethereal, scary synth patch or something like that. You can even have fun doing that with your own tracks. And all of a sudden you've got this wide berth of things that could get a lot more opportunity for you. And sometimes you find that you really like both versions a lot. You know, it's not necessarily sacrificing your art. You're just like, no different from playing with the band and doing an acoustic version, but one of those is going to get you potentially a lot more opportunity in a market that the other one would not. Tell me, uh, we're just about out of time. Yeah. Talk to me about community and your involvement in the Recording Academy, your involvement in the Bay Area music and audio scene. Mm -hmm. What does that mean to you and what do you get out of it? And if you could expand on that a little bit, I'd love to hear. Yeah. Well, I think for all of us, the nurturing that we've gotten from peers of our same age and people that have got more experience and maybe are older and have have done that for us. Some of those bells that are rung by those people in the community may not really make sense to you at first, but if you stick with it while you're like, oh, that's what they meant about this thing. I'm seeing that now, you know. I feel like that the artist community and not just musicians, but all of us are part of one body and one perspective that Similarly to the human body, you know, you've got to put nutrition into your body that's going to affect all of them, you know. And if you're only feeding or fueling one part of the community, it's kind of only eating food that's good for your arms and then your legs fall off or something, you know. (laughs) So I feel like 
it's part of it is just gratitude that I'm able to make music. I'm able to work on audio things that are emotionally just great feelings and good vibes. The struggle in being an artist for me has gone up and down and have had just areas of prosperity financially or prosperity artistically. And then periods where you're like, uh, artistically, there's not a lot going on right now. Or the opposite. I've got a lot artistically, but I'm not making as much money as I need to make or something like that. So I feel like all of us have this knowledge of how to make that happen and how to lift each other up, lift all ships kind of thing. I really believe that's key. And the Recording Academy and several other community things are trying to navigate like the change of, for some of us, the change of the industry. And then for people who are starting out, like what's the industry look like now? Industry meaning how can I sustain this without spending most of my life doing something else so I can put an hour into the thing I'm passionate about. Those are the things that for me are trying to keep a pulse on the community of like, what's in your way of the art? You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. What's keeping you from doing it? And how can we have these conversations instead of this protective collective where there's a bunch of people going, I don't want to share my secrets. I appreciate all the stuff that goes with trying to have your signature vibe or whatever. And, but I don't know. I, don't, I feel like we need to share all that stuff because... Nobody's really going to have your perspective. Two guys playing the same strat, you know what I mean? <laughs> They're not going to play the same thing, even with the same licks. So that's something that's just, dude, it's a, a brotherhood, a sisterhood, an, an overall communityhood of trying to figure out, wow, how do we do this and how do we keep it moving forward? Because culturally, there's just nothing so embedded in the fabric of humanity as these photographs of how we see it and that's what music and art and all these things are they're like you can literally watch a show uh, you can listen to a piece of music and feel exactly the feelings that you had when you were in the car and that first came on or something it's such a human snapshot that it's our home movies you know and if if we can't figure out how to sustain that it's feels like losing something you know what i mean Mm -hmm. well so if people want to check you out online. Where do they do that? McKayGarner.com has a lot of my production info and mixing info and those kind of things. I've got a McKay Mix thing on Facebook that's occasionally tended to with lots and lots of mixing and sound design tips. Most of those are on my website as well. I'm on Instagram as McKay all day. I think those are the main things. I have to give a shout out too to my buddy Cliff Toon has really just been working so hard on this new mix production room, just like down to the elbows trying to make stuff happen with sanding every piece of wood and every beam in here and make it look way more amazing than I can afford. Or He's just been really kind. And it's, uh, between COVID and all kinds of delays and curveballs that make it hard to get materials and, and keep your stress levels low. <laughs> And what's Cliff's, is he a contractor? He spent most of his life, he and I were both percussion majors together, and then he went into theater and design, that focus, and got into all kinds of audio design stuff and acoustics and started designing theaters and all kinds of things and built some studios along the way as well. And so he's got a 30 years of construction under his belt. And I've built a few studios myself with limited budgets and if you look at my construction work you're like oh okay you're a musician (laughs) you know what I mean but when he does something it's like whoa that's really straight and really clean and well thought out you know Um, so 
as you know, building a studio and getting a regular construction person to do it that doesn't have the knowledge of transmission, sound transmission and mass and all that stuff and acoustics, is, it's a wild ride. Yes, it is. McKay, thanks for taking the time to meet with me. It's been a long time coming, and I'm really glad that you could join me. And thanks again for sharing everything. <laughs> thanks so much. I hope I didn't talk your head off, bro. <laughs> <laughs> you got good information, so I, I enjoyed listening. Mm, thanks, buddy. Okay, take care. Our friends over at Cali Audio have just introduced the brand new LP UNF system, which is meant to give you everything you need from a studio monitor in a package that you can basically set up anywhere. And the system is specifically designed for your desk. So no matter how else you're using your desk, reflections from the drivers to the desk to your ears are accounted for giving you a perfectly clear picture of your mix that you can rely on to translate well. Whether you're putting them on stands behind your desk, on a desk away from walls, on a desk against a wall, on a desk on speaker stands away from the walls, there's a number of configurations and they have settings on the back to accommodate all of that and more. And if price is a concern, never fear. They're priced at $299. That's right, pretty affordable. Head on over to caliaudio.com and check out the new LP UNF. McKay Garner here on the Working Class Audio Podcast. Thanks so much for being here with me today, my friends. Really appreciate you stopping by week after week. I do have to give credit to my cohorts, Anne-Marie Plo for the editing, Cliff Truesdale for the Working Class Audio theme song, and the vocal talents of Mr. Chuck Smith. Connect with me on LinkedIn, stop by workingclassaudio.com, and until next time, take care. Hey, I know many of you are aware of this, but for those of you that aren't aware, Working Class Audio sponsors the forum over at gearspace.com called Audio Life. And quite simply put, it's a place where audio professionals can go to talk with other audio professionals about things other than audio gear, including life hacks, work-life balance, health and hearing loss. You know, if you want to talk with other audio professionals who can identify with what your lifestyle is like, and how it relates to things going on in the world outside of audio, this is a great place to go and check out. So head on over to gearspace.com, check out Audio Life, many of the same topics that we discuss here on the show on gearspace.com. So check that out.